Our verses in examination this morning will be found in uh, beginning with verse 51 through 65, and we'll continue to the end of the chapter. I'll ask you today to bear with me as we finish out chapter 14. I believe that these two segments, according to the Gospel of Mark and the Evangelist Mark, will go hand in hand with uh, what we find at the trial of our Lord Jesus. The sermon for today will deal with the appearance of Jesus before the Jewish council or the Sanhedrin. This would consist of the elders of Jerusalem, This is what consists of the scribes, the Pharisees, and those of the law, the Sanhedrin. We find that our Lord stands resolute and powerful and will only speak words that are needed to be spoken. And when our Lord is not speaking, He is powerfully silent. In fact, today's sermon is entitled, Powerful Silence. So if you will, let's stand together for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll look at verse 51, and I will read down through 65. Let's stand for the reading of the holy word of God. Beginning in verse 51, the Bible says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And they left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him from a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Holy Word of God and the reading to our heart and mind for transformation. You may be seated. Now I am reminded simply by the title of the sermon and what happens in this moment in the life of Jesus, I'm quickly reminded of the world that we live in and the world around us today and the culture, not just Western culture in, it, in itself, but, but globally. What is happening globally today? 
And if you were to look out over the globe, whether it be the avenue of social media or whatever it might be, you will find this undercurrent of something happening that everyone thinks that they must speak up and speak out against every issue at hand. Somehow we think that we have to make a commentary on every little aspect of every person's life. And I think part of this reason uh, an outpouring of commentary on every event is the need to feel more important than what we might really be. Also, there is this undercurrent of some narcissistic tendencies to think that we are more important than what we really are. And by the way, we don't need to comment on every single thing in every part of life, in every person's life. If I put something before you, let's say on social media, do you think that you really care? I don't think you really care about what I had for supper. Do you? Now, a little bit more to something a little bit more serious about whether I had ham hocks and cabbage for supper or not, but something a little bit more important, something that I look at in the social media in the world today. For instance, in the ever-shifting sand of what we have called the social justice movement of today, if one, if one doesn't speak out and against on any particular topic, then you are siding with the enemy. Now, what do I mean by that? I want, to, I want to say this first and foremost, okay? From the pulpit, from the public square, where the exposition of the Word of God should flow from, the sacred desk where we divide Scripture, I want to say this from the sacred desk so there is no ambiguity at all. Whether or not you, fig- you want to figure out where the pastor of Piney Grove is coming from, I will stand and proclaim this day I am against any racism of any kind. But at the same time, I do not affirm that racism is systemic. What do I mean by that? I am not racist just based on the color of my skin. And that could be white, black, whatever the culture, whatever the skin color might be. And the reason I say that, because there are proponents of the Black Lives Matter movement that purports this mantra that silences violence. Now, I do not know if I'm going to get in trouble for this today, but that's okay. It is in this movement where silence is violence, where people demand that the people they encounter in the street and patrons of various restaurants raise their hand to indicate solidarity with the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I will tell you this, that I would say that we, we can say that every life is sacred in the eyes of God. There is a sacred to, sacredness and dignity to every human being made in the image and likeness of God. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in His sight. And until the Black Lives Matter stand in solidarity... And storm the capital of Planned Parenthood. Don't come to me with that mantra. Anyone who declined to raise their hand in solidarity, they would get surrounded by protesters and called out. Now, I want you to know that I've probably gone a little bit too far. Far, or farther than I wanted to go this morning. 
I'm not going to travel down this train wreck of a political nightmare of a rabbit hole. I'm not going to do it. But what I will say this is silence is not violence. And in some cases, silence is deafening. Such is the case with the trial of our Lord Jesus. You might say, well, that preacher just connected Black Lives Matter with Jesus' silence before Pilate. What makes silence so powerful in this case? Well, we're going to find out in today's reading of the Gospel of Mark because Jesus only responds one time in Mark's discourse and the rest of the trial he is is silent as to not defend himself. I submit to you the Lord Jesus was quiet because he did not need to defend himself. And if there is no deceit found in the Savior's mouth, there is no sin found on him, that that means that the Lord Jesus only spoke words of absolute truth. Do you believe that? It is amazing how many people today who call themselves Christ followers say that Jesus sinned. Blasphemy. But let me remind you that his silence before his enemies, is because his fixation was on the cross and not trying to defend himself out of his passion. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, the back of the Christ, the Messiah, was destined for the wood of the cross. And I want to show you two trials in opposition one to another. The first is the trial, the literal trial of the Lord Jesus and the power that is found in his silence. The second will be a symbolic trial of sorts, and that is the trial of Simon Peter who protested outwardly and exuberantly. So we'll look at these two trials today. So number one is the trial of Jesus. Hopefully, if you're a student of God's Word, you know the trial of Jesus. At least the preliminary, uh, this preliminary trial. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is taken off. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin. But I did want to make just a quick comment on verse 51 and 52. So you will not think that I have glossed over the text or have jumped over verse 51 and 52. There is this enigmatic figure, this figure of some puzzle of sorts, that has been much opinion over the ages, and much ink has been shed over who this person is. So let's take a peek at verse 51 and 52, then we'll get back to the trial of Jesus. The Bible tells us that it was a young man that followed him, followed Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth on about his body, and they seized him, and he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. So whoever this person is, we know that he came to the garden in haste, throwing just this quick outer garment on, just throwing on this cloth over his body. He finds himself at the garden. Maybe there was some commotion there. The guards tried to grab him. He left his linen behind and ran away naked. Some would say there is a parallel between this person and and Joseph as he's fled Potiphar's wife in innocence and the connection that our Lord was was innocent as well. That's it. That's all that Mark gives us. And some would say this is Mark's way of letting us know that he was there. This is Mark's way of signing in the bottom. This is by the hand of Mark or saying that I was there. I'm not of this camp. 
The person running away naked and in shame is used by Mark as a literary device to foreshadow the nakedness and shame coming upon our Lord and the abandonment of the disciples or the abandonment of Jesus by his disciples. So it's best that we not lose sight of the grand story that Mark is telling simply on these two verses here. It is a foreshadowing of the shame of our Lord and it is also a telling of the scattering of the disciples. Thus begins the change of scene to that of the beginning of the trial for our Lord. The high priest, um, Jesus led, was led to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Not only is there literary devices throughout, but here is one in particular where there is thick irony used through the Gospel of Mark. And there are some occasions here where the irony is certainly thick. Here is Jesus that Hebrews calls the superlative high priest led to the high priest of the Jerusalem temple, that being Annas and Caiaphas. Also, they led Jesus to a trial that took place at night that was unlawful according to Jewish customs and the law itself. And so if it was unlawful, then the whole council is guilty. Do you see the irony here? From the priests to the scribes to the Sanhedrin, they were all guilty of breaking the law. Instead, they are putting a man on trial who had no sin. And Peter had followed from a distance right into the courtyard and the high priest. And he was sitting by the fire with the guards warming himself at the fire. And so Peter is inserted here at verse 54 into the narrative. And he'll resurface again in verse 66. We're going to pick up back there with Peter. He, he, is, he is keeping at a safe distance as not to be noticed. He, he is not bold enough yet to take an open stand for the Lord Jesus. Peter was more comfortable at the fire with the guards than standing by the side of our Lord. All the application that comes from this text is obvious and it is oozing from this passage. The application is obvious and glaring. Simply put, how many of us today are following Jesus at a distance? Hey, we don't want to get too close to that Christian thing. We don't want to get too close to Jesus. People might know that we're actually a follower of Christ. How many of us are ashamed today to say that we follow Jesus? How many, how many of us don't want to get too close to that Christian thing? We don't want to get too close to following Christ. At least people think that we are some knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who are thinking backwardsly. So not only... Not only is he following from a distance, but he's comfortable. He's comfortable. But not only to follow Jesus, every one of us, to follow Christ close and clean, but then to follow every word of Holy Scripture, especially on the issues the Bible clearly condemns. So there are some issues where the church must stand firm and stand loudly. Issues on life itself, the preciousness of life itself, the sanctity of human life. I believe the church needs to stand resolute and say we are against 
the murdering of innocent children in the womb. But that ain't it. That's just not a political thing. That's a biblical thing. Secondly, we need to stand for the gospel. And what I mean by that is not just some, some weak, anemic gospel message. I'm talking about the meat and potatoes of the gospel that Jesus came to die for sinners. He died a physical death on the cross and rose again. I'm not talking about come to Jesus, he's your best friend. I'm talking about know Jesus, he's your savior. So number two. We stand with the gospel, the clear, concise gospel message. And now we'll come back to Peter as we end the trial of Jesus here, at least the preliminary aspects. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And many came and they bore witness against him, and all their testimonies did not agree. So there is this one statement that Mark uses to let us know that this was not a formal trial. In fact, it was unlawful because the, he says, he uses this phrase, that they were seeking testimony. Why? Because none could be found. Remember, the Mosaic law says this, thou shalt not kill, right? Thou shalt not kill. So one must wonder, what is the loophole around this commandment and if one is looking for a loophole, would it not demonstrate that they are far from God anyway? And more about self-preservation. This loophole for the Sanhedrin would become the Roman Empire. And we'll see this as we continue to travel through the book of Mark. But true to the nature of Christ as being sinless, no no guile found in him, no sin, they found no testimony. So the council does what humanity does best or worst, however you want to look at it, distort and bear false witness against Jesus. It seems like things do not change much today because just like those days, people today will misrepresent Jesus. How do you think cults are born? How do you think cults rise? Because they distort the biblical Jesus, making him into something that is not the Christ of the Bible. People the world over today would even misrepresent Jesus all the time in the world over. Now, according to the law, there must be at least two witnesses, and they had none that came together, and so they conspired together. They lied. And some stood up and they bore false witness. They lied against him. They said, we have heard him say that he's going to destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, he will build another not made with human hands or not made with hands. And yet all of their testimony did not agree. And if you follow the trail enough of a lie, you follow it long enough, you will find that it forks, it twists, and it turns. Jesus did say, I will destroy the temple made with hands. In three days, rebuild it. Do you think that Jesus grabbed a brick and mortar? Do you believe he grabbed a wrecking ball of sorts and said, we're going to tear this temple down and, and build another? They thought that Jesus was out of his mind. I know Jesus is a carpenter, but is he a bricklayer too? He says, I will destroy the temple made with hands. And in three days it will be rebuilt, not by human hands. 
It was, he was not referring to the Jerusalem temple, not Herod's temple, not Herod's temple that come off the coat hills of Zerubbabel who began building the temple and Herod began to finish great Herod's temple. But he was speaking of his own death and his resurrection. And so what if he was talking about Jerusalem temple? They could just write him off as being crazy, right? So what if he said that he was going to tear the Jerusalem temple down and build it up in three days? Is this reason for them to seek his death? Theologian Henry Sweet observes that Jesus, as a matter of fact, did do what he quoted as saying in Mark. Theologian Henry Sweet said this. He said, what the event has proved to be true... His death destroyed the old order, and His resurrection created the new. So it was twofold. The death of Christ destroyed the old order, the old covenant, and the resurrection brought in a new. But not only symbolic, historic, in that He died a real, physical, historical death, and He rose with a historical, resurrected, real, fleshly body. He rose again from the dead. And in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? And so, think about it. If the cross of Christ is the objective, why would our Lord need to defend Himself and look for release? Regardless of what these men brought as an accusation, it was far from true testimony. So here is the portion when we look at this as Christ followers now, we mark this as one of the greatest and one of the most sweetest tragedies in all of history. That our Lord would suffer at the hands of sinful men And in this way, it becomes a testimony to His love. With every one of us who were there would have stricken our Lord, would have spit upon Him, would have pulled His beard, would have mocked Him, would have called Him names, would have slapped Him and said, prophesy. Moreover, the silence of our Lord is a sign of innocence. In the vein of Isaiah 53, 7, the suffering servant discourse It says this, that our Lord was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not defend himself and aren't you glad of that? He remained silent and made no answer. The high priest said, aren't you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this one statement that Jesus made about himself is about his nature and his power. To say that he is the Son of God is to claim divinity. When Jesus said, I am, every Hebrew student of the law should have went right to Exodus 3 at the burning bush when the Lord told Moses, tell them that I am sent you. There will come a day 
You don't have to mark my words, it's scripture. There will come a day when the roles will be reversed. Where Jesus will be the judge and Caiaphas and all of those in sin will be receiving the just trial. The Lord will be coming in the clouds of heaven as ruler, as we see in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Jesus was like, hey, you want a sign? Expect the Son of God, the Son of Man, to return with great power and glory. And so you and I sitting here today, we long for that day to see Him return, don't we? But in an expression of lament and extreme disapproval, the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. And so here is another portion of irony poured upon and poured out upon the text on behalf of the priest himself. For him to speak of Jesus and say that the Lord has spoken blasphemy is a gross projection on behalf of the high priest. For one, we know that the Lord is innocent. Right? This is the portion of the text where we call it dramatic irony. We know. We know that Jesus is innocent. Secondly, the very accusation of blasphemy that the high priest accused Jesus of is what the high priests were guilty of. In fact, if you were to go back to Mark chapter 3, around verse 28, Jesus said that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Sometimes we would call this the unpardonable sin. This blasphemy or unpardonable sin, is number one, it is denial of the Lord Jesus. It is a disbelief of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, it is a continual attribution of the work of God to that of Satan. To say that God's work is that of Satan and to continually do that, it is unpardonable. He says, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And they began to spit on him and to cover him, his face, blindfold him, strike him. As they were hitting him, they said, prophesy. And the, and the guards received him with blows, or they took him out to beat him. And I thought to myself, oh, the level, a theological term. Okay, it's not very long. Theological term. That I thought, this might be appropriate to share from the pulpit, maybe not. I thought to myself, what is an extreme expression that I could use, a theological expression? Oh, the level of crap that our Lord went through to secure salvation for the elect. Is that a theological term? In another twist of irony, the guards struck Jesus demanding that he prophesy when the very striking, the hitting was a fulfilling of prophecy. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who had pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and spitting. In a twist again of irony, 
The very call out for Jesus to fulfill prophecy was fulfilled by the guards as they hit and spit on my Lord. So here's Christ, the Son of the blessed, standing in sinlessness and without guilt. But we cannot say the same for Peter, can we? Peter would be swayed by fear as to where Jesus stood resolute with the passion and the cross before him. There is a danger, I think, that we will see with Peter later in going along with the crowd out of fear and rejection. I want you to think of this. The one who becomes friends to the way of the world is an enemy to Christ. Maybe in this one moment that we'll see in just a moment, Peter was an enemy. When one begins to love the way of the world, they will also begin to ridicule or maybe even detest the way of the Lord. So we're thankful for the Apostle Peter that he repented. We're thankful that Peter will be restored. But if Satan truly sifted Peter like we imagine the results. Jesus said that to Peter, remember? Satan seeks to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And if Satan truly sifted Peter as wheat, there would be no repentance. An 1800s Presbyterian pastor by the name of Theodore Kyler said of the attractions of the world, when the lust of the world has eaten out a Christian conscience, when it has deadened the spiritual sense, when it has dry rotted the whole heart, when it has banished Christ and possessed the soul affection, that man is ready to desert. No, he has deserted. What is any man worth to the church or to God when his heart is property of Satan? He may linger within the camp and even wear the uniform of a church member. But when the bugle calls to action, he is not in the ranks. He's standing by the fire Warming himself. When a march of reform is ordered or a strike, a strife for God's law is waged, he is missing. Jesus is standing here in strength and solidarity, being stricken, mocked, beaten, and the disciples were scattered. Jesus is, in this moment, truly alone. So here's the question. Knowing what Jesus went through, do you trust Him? And do you appreciate what our Lord went through? Or do we find ourselves like Peter? In the trial of Peter, this is the classic well-known narrative of Peter's denial of our Lord. And Jesus already told him that He was going to deny Him. Just for contextual purposes, let's look again at verse 54. Peter had followed him from a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, we would look at this and say, well, he seems pretty comfortable, but Peter is far from comfortable. It must be said, to Peter's credit, that he did at least follow the Lord from a distance, whereas the rest of the disciples were scattered. We can imply that maybe John the Beloved was there at the crucifixion and maybe he didn't scatter like the rest, but at least Peter did at least follow at a distance. Verse 66 says, Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came up to Peter who was warming himself and said, you were with the Nazarene, you were with Jesus. 
Peter's warming himself by the fire on this cold night in Jerusalem and was approached by a young servant girl that is implied in the text, a young servant girl, and she recognized him. And, and I know and I understand that the meaning of the text is the meaning of the text. It is up front and it is on the surface. But as I read this, I asked one question of myself. I'm trying to relate to Peter here. I asked this question of myself, even before Peter was seen as a bold preacher, after the day of Pentecost where he preached and 3,000 people were saved, he did follow Jesus for three years and was known as a disciple of Jesus. So my question was this. I'm looking at Peter and I'm like, man, I'm kind of like, like Peter in this way. Have I walked close enough to Jesus where people can tell that I am his? Have I been walking with Jesus close and clean where people could say that person there, that man is a Christ follower? Look at that woman. She, she loves Jesus. Do people recognize me as a follower of Jesus? Not as an acquaintance, not simply as a fan, not simply someone that says, hey, I'm a Christian, but then don't follow suit. Not an acquaintance, not a fan, but a follower of Jesus. So again, I'm going to ask you this, and then we're going, to, we're going to finish this up. Have I walked close enough? Have you walked close enough to Jesus, close and clean, and have spent enough time with Him in prayer where people can tell that you belong to Him, that you are His? But here's what Peter did. He said, now remember the Lord was silent. He stood in silence as to not defend Himself. Peter does something absolutely contrary to what Jesus did. He said, no, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't know what you mean. And he went out of the gateway and the rooster crowed. Count it up. There is one denial and one rooster crow towards fulfilling this prophecy. A few, a few squalor, uh, scholars have, have said, well, did Peter hear the rooster crow at this moment and was, and was reminded of Jesus' prophecy? And whether or not Peter heard this initial rooster crowing, it is irrelevant to the story. But even if he did hear it, he denied the Lord, so this rooster crowing wouldn't simply matter at all. In verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders who were going, passing by, this man is one of them. Wouldn't you like somebody to do that for you? This, this, is, one of, this is one of his. This is, this is one of, of Jesus' people. Follow him. This is one of Christ's. He's a Christ follower. He said, this, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, just to make sure that they know that he is not one of the disciples. Maybe I'll use a little bit of an, a, a swear word here to kind of make the point. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter began in that moment to be broken. To be broken. He broke down and wept. Now Matthew 24 verse 73 adds 
this, that your, ac- that your accent betrays you. Mark says, you, you have the Galilean. You are one of them. You are a Galilean. His Galilean accent gave him away. But they recognized him. They, they knew that Peter walked with the Lord, yet he denied it. I, I'm not one to add to Scripture, so I'm not going to add to Scripture. So I will simply make an inference here. That Peter was fearful of his life. He was afraid to go on trial, afraid to be arrested, and afraid to die. So he denied the Lord. And I don't think that we're too good or too holy in and of ourselves to say that I would never deny the Lord. We must be very careful to say I would never do that. If you you remember Peter's proud proclamation, he said this in verse 29. If you'll just look just a little bit up in chapter 14. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So maybe Peter following at a distance was, boy, he was really trying to kick against his prophecy. And he was really trying to show that he wasn't going to scatter like the rest of them. But he eventually does. And then he said this in verse 31. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same thing. I will submit to you by simple inference that Peter was afraid to die. Peter's original sin was that of pride and arrogance. Instead of being humbled, as we see our Lord do, in silence, Peter defended himself three times. I see a lesson here in the arrogance of Peter and pride, and yes, the fear of the Apostle Peter. The children of Christ Jesus, through the strength and persistence of pride, may fall into sin. It is important, listen to me here, it is important that we harbor not the attitude of, I would never do that. I would never fall into that sin. I would never be like that. Instead of harboring that attitude pridefully and arrogantly, instead, with the help of the Word of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and by His grace and by His mercy, I will not fall into sin. It is not, see, it's not me that keeps myself from sinning. The power is not in me, in myself. See, there is a lesson here on humility as much as there is on the holiness of Jesus. Puritan pastor and theologian Thomas Taylor said this of the repetition of sin. And we see this in Peter. On every proclamation there is a a repetition repetition of, of what I would say sin in denying our Lord. Every repetition of sin makes sin the stronger. As far as the body, the more it is nourished and fed, the stronger it grows. So with sin in the soul, every new act is an addition of strength until it comes to a habit. Now listen to what he says here. Pluck up a twig, then before it grows up into a plant, dash out the brains of every sin in its infancy. In other words, where John Owen, another Puritan writer, would say, in today's colloquial language, be killing sin or sin be killing you. And that is the idea of this repetition of sin. In other words, mortify that sin before it grows. Now, we see this increase in the thrice denial of Peter. 
Jesus stood silent in his innocence and Peter guilty in his protest. Every one of us, listen, every one of us stand guilty before God outside of the precious blood of Jesus. Every one of us. Everyone who is in their sin is guilty. But can I say this to you? Jesus came to set the captive free who are bound by sin and death. Jesus came to set the captive free. See, this removal of sin goes two ways. It is twofold. First, Jesus removes the sin of those who never knew him, who call upon the name of the Lord. And so he removes the stain of sin. Secondly, he enables the follower of Christ, the regenerate, the saved. He enables you to live a life free from the repetition of sin. I want you to ponder that today. Maybe you're here today. Now we studied the trial of Jesus to get an understanding of his innocence, his holiness, that he is the son of the blessed, that he is other than, that he stood in solidarity and truth without sin, and he done that so that you might be saved. He'd done that on the way to the cross. And so I say that today to think about that and to appreciate the, just the work and what our Lord went through. It almost makes me want to have communion today, to gather around the communion table. It makes me think of what our Lord did in that way. But then I also want you to, to think about this. As the Lord enables us to live free from sin, to live free from pride, to live free from arrogance, and to live in victory. See, I don't, I don't want to be like Peter, where sin sometimes rears its ugly head and I find myself struggling. So maybe that's you today, struggling with a sin, struggling with something that only the Lord knows about. Maybe it's one of those dark corners of your life where you don't think anybody knows about. Nobody sees it but you and the Lord. Maybe those dark corners are something that you might need to repent of today. And it has grown to a place where it's out of control. You believe in Jesus. You're a Christ follower. You love the Lord. But you're struggling with this one area. And today the Lord is calling you. He is calling you as you are His. He's calling you to lay it at the foot of the cross. Would you pray with me?